If I were to ask you, now don't rush your answer now, you have to think about this. If I were to ask you which American president was your favorite down through history, who was the most foundational to this country, who led at a time that was maybe our country was in crisis or made good decisions, who is your most favorite? If you had to read a biography on one American president, maybe you have, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln. How many of you thought Abraham Lincoln? You know, time and time again, he has won hands down in the poll as America's favorite. Abraham Lincoln. This quote says, Abraham Lincoln led the United States through its civil war, its bloodiest war, and its greatest moral, constitutional, and political crisis. In doing so, he preserved the Union abolish slavery, strengthen the federal government, and modernize the economy. <clears throat> the president for, no president has been more beloved than Abraham Lincoln. And here are all these surveys that have come out, putting him right at the very top. So you're in good company. And while we remember him for all the wonderful things that he accomplished, and I've I've read some of a biography, the team of rivals, and, and how he worked with people, and I especially love the stories of how he was so available to the common person and, and was sympathetic, right? But how many of you are aware of the fact, and most historians all agree, Abraham Lincoln battled with depression? Depression. We don't talk about depression too much. Biographer Joshua Wolf Shank reports that Lincoln experienced two major depressive breakdowns at age 26 and age 31, which includes suicidal statements that frighten friends enough to form a suicide watch. You know what that means? We can't leave him alone. We don't think it's safe. When he was 32, Lincoln wrote, I am now the most miserable man living. Sounds pretty dark, doesn't it? Abraham Lincoln went through not just these two, I would say many challenging and dark times. Lincoln's longtime law partner, William Herndon, observed about Lincoln, gloom and sadness were his predominant state and his melancholy dripped from him as he walked. He had many heavy moments. So the question this morning I want to ask, a depressed Christian? Isn't that an oxymoron? Is that possible? Is that okay to be a Christian and to be depressed? Or does that mean that something's wrong? Something's gone awry? Something's amiss? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Dr. Neil Nedley, a Seventh-day Adventist physician, reports that 25% of Americans have major depression. 25%. And I would doubt, as in most every other case with most every other statistics, it's no different in our church. One, two, three, four. Which section wants to be depressed? It's a lot of people, majorly depressed. 
Well, how can I know if it's major depression? You're thinking, oh great, you're getting me depressed already just thinking about this. That's why I wore my bow tie, I'm trying to cheer you up. (laughs) Okay, how can I know? Experience, if you experience at least five of nine symptoms for at least two weeks, then you fall into the clinical category of major depression. And don't anybody leave right now. You'll make me feel bad, and then I'll be depressed. And it can't be that you've just recently faced some emotional trauma. That, of course, is going to skew things. Let's look at these. Deep sadness or emptiness. You also qualify if you're not just sad, but feeling like just, well, empty. Women have more of the sadness, crying for something perhaps relatively small. They don't know why they're crying. This is not that big of a deal. The cat didn't die or anything like that. It's just this little thing and there's a breakdown. Men more often characteristically feel the emptiness, not all the time, but a majority of the time. So that's one. Another one, apathy. That's when you wake up and you're not necessarily excited about the day. One gets up out of duty, not necessarily interest. Perhaps things that you enjoy, you don't enjoy so much. And it can get so severe that when people take them out, all they can think about is, I have to get out of here, I have to get home, I don't want to be around people. Apathy. Third, agitation. This is the one that's most commonly goes under the radar when people try and go through these. They say, I'm not more agitated. Ask your spouse. He's been a little more irritable lately. A fourth one, sleep disturbances. Maybe you can't fall asleep, or maybe you're just sleeping too much. 18, 20 hours a day, you're barely awake enough to survive. But the most common is you get to sleep, but you get up too early. Maybe you need to be up by six, and you find yourself awake at four, and you can't go back to sleep. Another one, weight or appetite changes. Weight gain is more common. Why? Because we self-medicate. I need some comfort foods. And most often we self-medicate, not with a head of broccoli, (laughs) but those sweet sugary foods, or the bowl of mac and cheese. Number six, lack of concentration. When you find yourself at the bottom of the page and you don't know what you've just read and so you go marching back to the top. Seven, feeling of worthlessness. Eight, morbid thoughts, and this is more than just suicidal thoughts, but perhaps a preoccupation with death or symbols of death, crossbones or skeletons or all these things that it amazes me are so popular in dress and tattoos and the list goes on. And then the last one, fatigue. This is different from apathy. Fatigue is waking up with no energy or you run out of energy too quickly. So you don't have to have all nine. How many do you have to have to be majorly depressed? 
just five, to be majorly depressed. Now, just one, and you are at a variant of normal. Ouch. If you have two, you are minorly depressed. But if you don't get help, you're on your way to experience major depression. Fifty percent of the country is experiencing minor depression. Fifty percent. And we already said 25 percent major. So again, we ask the question, is depression common experience among Christians? And I'd have to say overwhelmingly, yes, it is. In fact, do you know who are some of the highest offenders? Pastors and their spouses. But I think we could add to that teachers, physicians that work all hours, workaholics, perfectionists. And you might be scratching your head thinking, how can, you, how can this be? A depressed Christian. This sounds like a contradiction. Certainly, if they've been born again, if they've been filled with the Holy Spirit, shouldn't it be impossible for them to be depressed? The depressed Christian certainly must be a red flag that something is wrong between them and the Lord. It must be a sign of sin in that person's life. Perhaps you've heard these things before. Maybe you've even thought them before. But I want to address the fact that I don't think that holds with Scripture. Christians can be depressed. Have you ever read David's Psalms before? Look at some of these. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Is he skipping to the park, whistling his favorite tune? Not at all. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me in another place. Here's another one. My tears have been my food day and night. Now this is an amazing psychological statement, by the way. Depression often brings that loss of appetite. You don't feel like eating. Food might repulse you. And one's often unable to stop crying. They don't even know why they're crying. They're just crying. My tears have been my food day and night, David says. Or this one might surprise you. Book here on James White by uh, Gerald Wheeler. He says this, while the mood swings and depression might overwhelm White for a time, he never permanently surrendered. He struggled to break free. Those who have never battled depression or similar problems cannot grasp what he constantly faced. Such conditions are not something you can snap out of at someone's urging. But Ellen White gave him her support and did everything she knew to help him. James White, founder of our church, one of our general conference presidents. Depressed? Yeah. At times. Anybody remember Jonah? After preaching one of the most amazing evangelistic series ever recorded, 
the whole city repents. This is huge. Yet what does he say? Oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I look like a fool. Or how about Elijah? Maybe I'll wait to go there. You remember the story of Elijah, don't you? There are several, but I'm thinking of the one where there's been no rain, and then he's told to go before the king, and he's not bashful. In fact, if we turn there, it's in 1 Kings chapter 18, and beginning verse 1, it says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And God says, go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. And so he goes in a very diplomatic fashion. And Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said to him, this is the king speaking to him now, is that you, O troubler of Israel? A little intimidating. Nice to meet you too. They'd already met, but you get the idea. Verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah and eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20, so Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. You remember the story. And he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Is Elijah courageous? Is he connected to the Lord? Is he in tune with God? Is he obedient? Is he doing all of these things? And you know the story. Everybody comes out. It's this big showdown and, and all the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and doing all these things to try and get their God to respond. And finally it's Elijah's turn and all the buckets come out. They pour everything over with water and he prays a prayer in verse 36. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned the hearts back to you again. And it says, fire comes down from heaven. And everybody's blown away. Whoa! And they go after the prophets of Baal. And people say, he's God. This is the real deal. I mean, talk about a high day for God's people. And God's prophet. Yet I imagine, and I'm, I'm perhaps inferring into the story a bit, I imagine this time to be a very stressful time, maybe lack of sleep, maybe giving it his all, maybe somewhat fatigued and exhausted after all of this. He's been on high alert. And so in chapter 19, Jezebel gets word of this, and she makes a threat. Not really surprising, but she makes the threat. And what does Elijah do? He tucks tail and runs. And this is what he says. What is this, a day later, a few days later? Not long. 
And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Unfortunately, so many well-intentioned Christians can be our worst enemies at this point. Perhaps the individual that's criticizing does not lend themselves to depression. Perhaps the husband does not suffer with depression like the wife does. But whatever the case, the spiritual guilt trip ensues. Well, if you just read your Bible more, you wouldn't be depressed. If you just prayed more, none of this would be happening. If you just went to church more, prayer meeting more, Bible studies more, obviously something's broken in your relationship with God. Now, I have to say I do understand that it is possible that if I'm cheating on my wife, I can feel guilty and become depressed. That's possible, and that's an outcome. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about a much more common occurrence. We're talking about a vague, all-inclusive umbrella of systemic self-accusation, general feelings of anxiety and condemnation, which cannot be pinpointed oftentimes. They're just generally signs of plain old depression. Well, snap out of it. I wish I could. Oftentimes they come from emotional sources and the roots of those sources may run very deep and be unknown to the individual. That can be very complicated. Going back to childhood hurts or scars and some triggers. And oftentimes we carry those into adulthood. And if we don't process them, if we don't deal with them, they can come back to haunt us even when we're reading our Bible and praying and going to church. You know, even Jesus felt this overwhelming feeling of anxiety and condemnation when he prayed this prayer, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Well, Jesus, maybe if you just read your Bible more, you wouldn't be so sorry. You wouldn't feel bad. It doesn't work. Sounds heretical, doesn't it? Yet Jesus does something very profound. He doesn't mask it. He doesn't try and hide it. It's very simple, but it's profound. He acknowledges it. You go to any 12-step program. Step number 12 is never acknowledge it. It's always the first one. Problem named is a problem solved. Oftentimes, before a person can deal with depression, they must acknowledge it. And it must be okay. It must not come with all kinds of condemnation or judgment or anything else. By honestly acknowledging your feelings about depression, you're not adding to God's information about you. He already knows these things and these feelings. In fact, he has already experienced them himself. 
I would suggest. By denying their depression, many Christians add to their troubles. They add guilt on top of depression and therefore double the problem. Is that true? Let's say severe depression is like carrying around a ton of emotional weight. And those that have been there, you can say, yeah, that's about what it feels like. To carry a ton on your back, well, it's not easy. It takes a lot of strength, but maybe, just maybe, you can handle it. However, when you add the guilt by saying, there's something wrong with me because I have this depression, you've then doubled the weight. And that's an impossible load for anybody to carry. You double the weight. It's an impossible load. You can't carry it. Depression is common for Christians. But what the devil wants to do is to convince you that it's happening because you're spiritually off. And in so doing, he alienates you from the source of life and strength and power and seeks to heap guilt on top of the depression in hopes to completely crush you. Does this sound like a good plan from the devil's standpoint? Well, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel like he hears my prayers. I just don't feel like he loves me. You ever thought those things? Let me suggest the love of God is not grounded in my feelings, my performance, or even in my love of him. Do I need to read it again? Okay, I won't. No, I have to. The love of God is not grounded in my feelings or in my performance or even in my love of him. His love is grounded in his own faithfulness, period. He loves you. He wants what's best for you always, even when you don't feel it. Elder Cloco read this this morning from the clear word, remember my affliction and roaming the wormwood and the gall, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. So they're feeling down, they're feeling out, they're feeling like their soul is just sinking within them, but they recall to their mind, therefore I have hope through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. I would submit this person doesn't feel that way, but is claiming it anyway. Through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. And to finish the verse, they are new every morning. Great is my faithfulness. Is that how it reads? Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. So you might be saying, okay, I saw the list. And maybe you have five out of nine. Or two out of nine. I see that depression is not necessarily a symptom of guilt. I can be right with God and depressed at the same time. I see that I must not pretend or hide the fact, but I have to acknowledge it. Is there anything else I can do? Yes, there is. <clears throat> Are you living beyond your means? Jack did a great job alluding to this in the, the offering call. 
But I think it goes a lot more than just our finances, doesn't it? You, are you physically and emotionally at your limitations? Pushing the envelope, we like to say. Sleep. You need to stay within the margin and get enough sleep. I shouldn't have to say this, but America, by and large, we don't sleep. Well, it's a waste of time. I just have one more email to check before I go to bed. Send one more text. I don't know, I'm just, there's got to be something else on. And we don't sleep. Occasionally you'll be called upon to go without sufficient rest. But to make the exception the rule, are you hearing me? Means you will live in a constant state of fatigue. An energy crisis will lead to an identity crisis. It will happen. And let me answer one question before you ask it. No, it makes no difference if you are in the Lord's service. Did you hear me? Makes no difference. God does not suspend his laws and make cosmic pets of preachers, missionaries, teachers, doctors, high achievers, overcommitted church workers. He doesn't do it. Everyone needs their rest. And if you don't get it, there'll be warning signs. There'll be lights and buzzers and all kinds of things that will start going off to get your attention. Well, doctor, don't you have a pill? No, get your rest. Go to sleep. Eating. Are you eating properly and regularly? People that are severely depressed, oftentimes when they bring somebody in that's majorly depressed, one of the first things they do is feed them because they haven't eaten. They have to eat. They need nourishment. When your energy level is low, depression is high. Exercise is another great one. Again, this is a basic, but are we consistently exercising? You don't have to be running marathons. Just get out there. Some of you that are perfectionists, you say, well, if I can't run five miles a day and brag about it, I'm not going to go at all. That's baloney. Just get out there and walk to the end of the driveway and back. Day one, good for you. Put it on the fridge. Be proud of yourself. It is possible that depression is one way God uses to tell us to slow down. Stop trying to live above realistic possibilities. Another thing we can do is our reactions. The things that happen to you are not as important as the way you respond to those events. I have no control over what happens to me but I have full control of how I respond to that, don't I? Whether it's a blow to your ego, getting a B plus instead of an A, a breakup, or even a death or divorce. How will you respond to those events? Sometimes we win major battles with heavy artillery and on and on and on, but it's the small sniper that picks us off when we're not getting enough sleep, enough rest, Maybe we're not getting in God's word. I think that's what happened to Elijah. He was so depleted. And what does God have to do? He says, come away. Let me feed you. 
rest for a while, let me change your perspective, and then you can re-engage. According to David Siemens, there are three primary reactions that lead to depression. One is indecision. You put off making a decision. You don't want to hurt someone. Some situations you, I have to submit, you can't get out of without hurting someone. They want you to be here. They want you to be there. Somebody's going to be upset. Just make a decision. But too often, when someone postpones, they hurt people twice as much. Did you hear that? Twice as much. Perhaps they're afraid to say yes, afraid of the responsibility or risk. And somehow they feel trapped. They don't see a way out. So indecision is one reaction that leads to depression. Second, anger. Some unresolved issues in your life. As surely as night follows day, depression follows unresolved, repressed, or improperly expressed anger. Well, I'm not an angry person. This is not necessarily talking about throwing things. This is talking about something inside that's just a rub. A person, their name is used and it's a, a rub. There's friction. You see that person's car and it does something to you inside. And lastly, injustice. Perfectionists have a very disproportionate sense of justice at times. The, thin, the sense that they must right the wrongs in the world. To correct things, to pull up the weeds growing with the wheat. Now suffice to say this is good in balance. But when it becomes excessive, with unresolved anger, injustice can be very destructive and it can bulldoze relationships. Indecision, anger, and injustice. What's the answer? He says this, the only answer to the deep anger against the injustices of life is forgiveness. Who most often needs to be forgiven? Parents and family members. So often the roots of depression are buried in the subsoil of early family life. Not always, but often. Often without awareness, we can feel angry towards others or towards family or friends because of comparisons. Anybody here good at that? Cons comparisons of a more sporty brother or a prettier sister. Comparisons by teachers or friends. Resentment because of favoritism by a parent. Anger and bitterness because of how someone wrongly used their authority over you and treated you unfairly. And those emotions can and will enslave you without realizing it. They have authority over you and you will find yourself frozen in anger. And that will never go away until you face up to the true feelings and forgive. Well, they've never come and asked. You can forgive them anyway. We must get out of the setting it right or getting even business and the, instead get into the forgiving 
and loving business. They did the best they could. For whatever reason, they don't see it. I'm going to choose to forgive them. And instead of to use that as a baseball bat to just slug this relationship over the head, I'm going to try and preserve it the best that I know how by using forgiveness. That's powerful. And we talk about it here in church, and, well, I need to forgive the people. Yes, we need to forgive each other in church, but where really, where the rubber meets the road is family, isn't it? Family's tough. But forgiveness is the key. Martin Luther also struggled with some serious bouts of depression, and he and David Siemens both have this list. They, didn't, they weren't contemporaries, obviously, but here's a list of some things that you can do. Six tips for meeting depression. Number one, avoid being alone. That's what you want to do. You want to put on the sad music and you just want to wallow in it and you just want to be so sad and down and out. You have to avoid that. Number two, let me just say about number one, this is one area where you have a definite choice. Right? You do. Number two, seek help from others. You must recognize that you cannot pull yourself out of depression any more than that you can get yourself out of quicksand by pulling out your own hair. It's not going to work. You need help from somebody else. Well, that must mean I'm really messed up if I go to counseling. No, you're messed up if you don't, is the reality. From time to time, people need to talk to somebody else. My name's David Wright. I've been to counseling. I have. That's okay, isn't it? We're there for each other. We take turns holding each other up. All right, number three. Oh, I have to point out this too before we go. Seek help from others. Neil Nedley is an Adventist physician. He's got a website, Nedley Health Solutions. Uh, he's at Weimar. He's got a book, Depression, uh, Finding Way Out or The Way Out. Good book. There's a phone number. You can get that online as well. Uh, another local one, a Clear Word Counseling Center. That's right here in Hendersonville. Very confidential, very professional. Um, another one that I would highly recommend is up in Asheville, Dr. Bill Matthews. Take that down. We all recognize it's not for you. It's for a friend. So just go ahead and take that down. <laughs> and maybe I should, uh, I could just include this in an email. I'll just send it out and you can disregard it if you want to. But uh, for those of you that have depressed friends, a quarter of your friends are depressed anyway. Um, so we'll keep going here on our list. Three, sing, make music. Well, I don't feel like singing. That's when you need to do it the most. And if you have a godly spouse that will come alongside you, I don't want to say force you to sing, but strongly encourage you to sing, it helps. In fact, we find David doing that with King Saul over and over with his depression, doesn't he? He keeps summoning for David to come play. And I would, I would caution you what kind of music you play or sing. Don't sing the country songs. 
You know, you sing them backwards and you get your house back and your car back and your dog back and your wife back. And don't go there. We're talking about uplifting, spiritually uplifting songs, church songs, religious songs. Sing, make music. Fourthly, praise and give thanks. You have plenty to be thankful for. I was just looking at something the other day about how thankful they were for their bed, and I thought, what? And they went into all the wonderfulness of sleep and a mattress and memory foam and, and pillows and feathers and all the rest, and, and all the people around the world, they don't have beds like we know beds. We all have so many things for which to be thankful for. Five, lean heavily on the power of God's word. God's word even tells us in everything, give thanks. And doesn't say feel thankful for everything. It says in everything, give thanks. Lean on God's word. Claim it. Take the, your most favorite Bible promises and write them out. Make them personal. Circle words. Put a triangle around and Put arrows. It's not for anybody else to understand. It's not to be published. It's for you to actually Get what this passage is saying and what God's saying to you through this passage. Journal it out. Six, rest confidently in the presence of God's Spirit. Psalms 42, 5 says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? That's David. We looked at it earlier. Put your hope in God, for I will yet raise him, my Savior and my God. I will praise him, excuse me. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. There was a man in the hospital preparing for a surgery. It was a pretty big surgery, and a nurse came in, asked if she could hold his hand, and he said that would be fine. And she started to explain what to expect. Isn't that nice when they explain what you can expect? And she says, tomorrow during surgery, you will be disconnected from your heart. It's a big one. And you'll be kept alive only by virtue of certain machines. And I imagine she went into more detail about that, but then she said, when your heart is finally restored and the operation is over, you'll be brought back to this very special recovery room. But you'll be immobile for about six hours. And you may be unable to move or speak or even to open your eyes but you will probably be perfectly conscious and you'll hear everything going on in the room. During those six hours, I will be right here and I will be holding your hand exactly as I'm doing now and I will stay with you until you fully recover. Isn't that beautiful? Although you may feel hopelessly and helplessly lost and abandoned, when you feel God's hand, you will know that he won't ever leave you. He's not embarrassed of you. He hasn't cast you off. And as much as you may want to talk or speak or move, you just feel immobilized. But he's there holding your hand. 
until you fully recover. Remember my afflictions and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall in my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Oh God, great is your faithfulness. The Lord, you are my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. If you feel depressed this morning or overwhelmed or helpless, please know and don't ever forget, great is God's faithfulness. His compassion will never fail. His mercies are not consumed, and he will always be there to hold your hand every step of the way. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, great is thy faithfulness. Yet this morning, I believe some here in the fog, and some can't see their way out. Draw close to that hurting soul right now. And even if they cannot feel it, by faith, help them to know that you love them with an everlasting love and that there are people and resources that can help them. And most of all, that you will be there the entire time holding their hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.